It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, The Nativity Story, Black Nativity. Sure, these are all Christmas movies, but if there's really no such thing as secular, as we like to say on the TC Podcast, then surely we can find signs of Advent in more unlikely films, no? I'm Josh Larson, your host and editor at thinkchristian.net. That's the goal for this episode, to discuss what we're calling unconventional Christmas movies. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, ideally, it's a movie that has no literal connection to Christmas at all. Or if it does, it's just in the background and not really an integral part of the story. And yet, somehow these films still capture the longing, the hope, and the promise of Advent. That's an unconventional Christmas movie. Now, we asked for listener suggestions for such films on Facebook and Twitter. You can find us in both places at Think Christian. And we got a bunch of great responses. Our friend Brett McCracken, editor for the Gospel Coalition Arts and Culture section, suggested Arrival, a metaphysical alien encounter film from Dune director Denis Villeneuve, in which a great gift is bestowed upon humanity. We also heard from Kevin McLenathan, host of the Scene and Believing podcast, who said this, Something about many Dardenne films feels adventy to me. Grace breaking through to reveal itself in the ordinary, average people struggling mightily to find solace and or sanctuary in a world that too often has no room left at the inn. I think Kevin's on to something there. Two Days, One Night is the Dardenne film that came to mind for me. Listener Christy Olson had an interesting one. I will go to my grave arguing that Knives Out is an Advent movie, specifically a treatment of Mary's Magnificat in story form, a vision of the goodness of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. I love that movie so much, especially at Advent. Thanks to Christy and others for all the suggestions that came in. Uh, We also heard cases for Groundhog Day, The Matrix, Midnight Special, and The Day the Earth Stood Still. Among the most mentioned were the two we ended up choosing to discuss, Die Hard and Children of Men. Michelle Reyes and I will head to Nakatomi Plaza circa 1988 in a bit. Before that, Joe George will join me and jump forward in time to the dystopian future of 2027 with Children of Men. Quickly, first though, as you're doing your Christmas shopping, if you'd like to give us a gift, at the top of our list is a review on Apple Podcasts. You can do that right now as you're listening. Just go to our show page in the app and scroll down all the way down to reviews and click on write a review. A star rating and a few words would go a long way toward helping us reach new listeners. Thanks a lot. Good to have Joe George back on the podcast to discuss a movie that has only grown in my estimation since coming out in 2006, Children of Men. Welcome, Joe. Maybe you could set the table here with um, a basic idea of the movie's plot, when and where this takes place, and then tell me when you first saw Children of Men and what your relationship with it has been. Yeah. So the the movie takes place in 2027, and it's a future in which all humans are infertile. So no child has been born since 2009. In fact, the, the opening of the movie is a news report telling us that baby Diego, the last child to be born, has been murdered in a knife attack. And the film follows uh, Theo, played by Clive Owen, who was an activist and an idealist when he was younger, but then when his son Dylan dies, kind of loses hope and 
his marriage to uh, Julian, played by Julianne Moore, fizzles. And we meet him as this kind of like a basic noir hero. Like he's bitter and cynical and beat down and is recruited slash kidnapped by Julian, who is (laughs) working as part of a terrorist, well, terrorist group is the right word, resistance group. And he's charged with helping them through political connections to get this girl out of the country. Oh, and a thing I should have mentioned that in all of this disaster and lack of hope, Britain has become a fascist state. Uh, and so lots of images of, of immigrants in particular being rounded up and, and, and uh, we'll get into that, some of that imagery here in a minute. And so he has to help her get out and she is a, a refugee. It also, we find out she is pregnant and she is the, uh, this woman named Key and I forget the actor's name. Uh, it's uh, Claire Hope Ashity. Thank you. Yes. This woman named Key and she is pregnant. And so he is trying to protect the, the first pregnant woman in 19 years from um, various forces that want to, want to capture her. And, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into more from there. Um, I saw it in 2006 uh, and, and loved it right away. You know, I'd already liked Quran to that point, and that movie bowled me over. But I have to admit, it's been probably a decade since I watched it last, mm, you know? Okay. And so watching it now, away from that post-9-11 war on terror world in which it's clearly talking to, uh, has yeah. been really interesting. Yeah, for sure. The ways its resonance for me, I think, has only grown. And it's one of these vision of the future movies that get more harrowing to watch as we get closer to its future, which, as you mentioned, is only, what, a couple years years away now. (laughs) Yeah, it's based actually on a novel by P.D. James and the director you mentioned, Alfonso Cuaron, best known now maybe for making Roma of just a couple Mm -hmm. years ago, a fantastic film. And when you talk about the setting here, Joe, with England kind of walling itself off, particularly to migrants and refugees, uh, that's something we've only seen increasing crises for refugees across the globe since 06, right? There's even the recent headlines about horrible conditions uh, for migrants at the border of Poland and Belarus. So this is a movie you watch now and it's like, oh man, it was onto something, unfortunately, then that is coming to pass in some disturbing ways. Now, liked it right away when I saw it as sort of a brilliant dystopian movie, Mm -hmm. the way it's a fine line movies set in the near future have to walk, where it has to be familiar yet unfamiliar and believable. And I think Children of Men with its production design, its use of certain makes of cars, just little tweaks like that to the future, what the computers look like, really works as a dystopian movie. It's a brilliant action movie, There are a couple of set pieces involving long single takes with the camera that are just stunning. But to our point for this episode, what I really want to know is how it works for you as a Christmas movie, especially on this revisit after it's been a number of years. Yeah. So much better than I even remembered that it has to be intentional. Like I don't, I've never read the novel. I don't know if you have. I haven't Um, either. No. Okay. The scene where you reveal that Key is pregnant is happening in a barn and there are (laughs) cattle lowing while while she's revealing (laughs) this great hope, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's that whole thing. But the more trenchant point and the one that you're kind of hinting at as well is just the way it gets at the sort of power structures that are at the heart of Advent, where we are seeing in this reality, hopeless people doing what governments do, which is when they're scared, which is oppress, turn to war and violence. And 
the outstanding hope of a baby being born. And, and I'm, you know, the, the standout scene, of course, is the the scene where he walks with the baby. The I don't know how much detail we want to get into that, but uh, yeah, we could probably spoil it. It's it's been okay. long enough. So yeah, this <laughs> okay. is this is after the baby has been born. They've yes. found themselves as part of trying to get out. They actually go through this refugee camp, which is essentially an internment camp, a prison yeah, camp, absolutely. but it's set within a city. So it's yep. kind of a lot of chaos. And Theo and Key are alone at this point. And they find themselves in this building that's kind of in the midst of a clash between these uprising forces and government soldiers. So they're really in the midst of a battle scene. The baby's been born. They've been trying to hide the baby. But at this point, she starts crying. And everyone kind of just freezes because they've not heard this, right, in so many years. So, yeah, go on. Take it from there what what you wanted to say about this scene. It's so amazing. So he's on the top level, or the key and Theo and the baby, who is unnamed until the end of the film, so this is important. Theo and, and Key and the baby are on the top level of this floor, and there's, like you say, there are the resistance people in the camp fighting. There are the British soldiers fighting. And then there's a third group, which is the resistance group that Julian, Clive Owen's ex-wife, is part of, led by Chiwetel rather, who want the baby to be a symbol of their their uprising. So they are also in this. And um, this character played by Charlie Hunnam is kind of this bloodthirsty person that we've seen kill people. And so there's also, in the middle of that too, there is this group that's chasing after them, right? Yeah. And- Theo gets the baby from uh, Luke, Force character, and is walking down. And you're exactly right that it's as people hear crying, they're reaching out and we're getting these close ups of hands reaching towards the baby and they're mumbling often words of praise in various languages. Or in English, they're often saying Jesus Christ, which is meant to be. You know, like a, a like a curse word or like a yeah a curse word. Yeah, but there's two instances of that we should get to that are really yep. interesting. But yeah, yep. go ahead. And as he's walking down, then it's at first it's refugees who are reaching out and are given hope by that. But then it becomes soldiers and they stop fighting. There's a, a key scene where he comes down and there's you know the soldiers are holding their guns at him and then the lead soldier hears the baby's cry and says you know stop firing stop firing and they all put down. And they walk through this battlefield. Just the baby's presence has brought peace. And, and one thing I want to touch on really quickly here is, is the score. The score is, uh, let me see if I can get the what it's called. The, the score is not properly a score, apparently. It's a piece of music composed by John Tavener. And it's called Fragments of a Prayer. And Tavener took the themes of the novel and the film and then created this piece of music separate from the film. So then okay. Corral came through and added it in there. In that particular scene, it begins, uh, when the fighting begins, it samples in parts of uh, Threnody for the victims of Hiroshima, Christoph's Panarecki. If you know Twin Peaks season three, it's the bomb sound. That's in there. And so it's that noise of war. And then it bleeds out. And this fragments of a prayer bleeds in over the score with, um, who's the singer? Sarah Connolly is singing Hallelujah. And so there's this shift also on the music scape as they're walking through and just a, a, a hair-raising scene. It's yeah, gorgeous. It is. And I'm, I am so glad you tracked that down because it's something I thought about and didn't have time to get to because throughout the film, there are little elements of sort of what we would consider sacred choral music or just, you know, classical sacred music. And and I was trying to figure out, is is that something I've heard before? Is that new? Because it does add to this aura and particularly in this scene we're talking about. 
And I'm glad you described in such detail who reaches out and how to the baby, because there's some ways I'm totally with you, Joe. Every time I watch this, I start to think more and more like this is so obvious, you know, and it's something that crossed my mind in 06, but I didn't really spend a lot of time on. I think it wasn't until 08 that I wrote for Think Christian, an actual piece talking about Children of Men as a Christmas movie, but it's not something that everyone came out of this movie saying. And now in retrospect, after multiple revisits, I feel like, how did I not see this more clearly? Because in some ways, it's almost an allegory. You have Key, who is a Mary figure. And what I love about her performance, Hope Ashley's performance, is that she makes her this fierce and kind of funny young woman who has her own personality, right? She's not just kind of a hopeless, quiet figure. There's a great exchange after the baby is born. All this chaos is going around. And Theo looks at her and says, how is she about the baby? And she just looks at him like annoyed. <laughs> yep. like, of course, she's not doing well. So so I love that portrayal of um, what really is a Mary figure. Theo, of course, is a Joseph figure, this surrogate father guiding her through territory, as you said, that's been made unstable by the state and is preying on people's fears, yeah. which we see in the original Christmas story as well. And then to go back to the scene we were just talking about, you could even stretch this far enough to say that those refugees who initially reach out to the baby as they walk through the hall are something like the shepherds in the Christmas yep. story, right? Even it's very interesting to me that the soldiers you mentioned who put down their guns, that there are three of them. And mm-hmm. we think of, you know, the story of the three wise men. I don't know if it, it directly compares because these are threatening figures to the baby initially, but yeah. it becomes so clear the more you watch it that I start to count like things like that <laughs> to see yep. like, how far is this going to go? And I do believe, you know, P.D. James, though I didn't read it, I believe, a Christian and could very well have intentionally woven this into the novel. As we're discussing this, you know, I feel like people are going, if you haven't seen this movie, are going to be afraid that it's too literal in a way that's too in your face and is kind of missing uh, the poeticism you might want from a film, the subtlety you might want from a film. But that's the miracle of Children of Men is, for me, it manages to balance both. Like, it it took us this long for it to sink in, but when we see it— it's so beautifully done. Yeah, I mean, it's it's artfully constructed. It's my favorite Quran movie. Um, mm, I, I like okay. it way more than the rest of them. And it's well done that even when it's obvious now, you don't mind because his control of his craft, the way that um, uh, him and Lubezki shoot these, there's action scenes that are the long takes. There's a, there's a standout scene then in a car that's very exciting. Um, yeah. But there's even before that, there's a lot of long takes just when people are doing relatively mundane things. You know, it's very much a mid 2000s movie in the way that you you have a lot of handheld shaky camera like, you know, that you got in the Bourne movies and that sort of thing. And right, a lot right. of downgraded, uh, uh, it, you know, bleak looking things like you got in uh, grimy horror movies at the time. And, and And he's using all of that language of hopelessness and the intimacy that the shaky camera gives us and these long, unflinching, unbroken takes. We probably don't have time to get too much into it, but there's this wonderful conversation between the group of people that, uh, this woman uh, who is with Key and she comes uh, with Key and the baby and this woman and Theo come to visit his friend Jasper, played by Michael Caine, who's kind of like this old hippie um, Mm -hmm. who's got this bunker out there. And Jasper is explaining what happened to Theo. 
And he gives this kind of speech about faith versus chance. Yeah, right? is that the other yes. one? Is it chance? I, I have my notes here. I can't remember what the other. It's one is, it's but. similar. It's something like that. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, and so he's having this description of you know how it was a chance meeting that Theo and Julian met each other, but they were there at a rally, which was an act of faith. And he keeps talking yeah, shared about faith, how, right? Exactly. And he, the problem with Theo is that he stopped to believe in the ability of faith to override chance. That's one conversation that is shot with Clive Owen's character just standing on the outside um, mm-hmm. with this, you know, beam of wood next to him as he's sitting there and taking it all in. And the, the, the Jasper and the others are out of focus in the side. And that could be cut to, you know, to get all of the reactions of the various characters. But we just hold and there's little shakiness of the camera as Theo thinks about this truth that he's hearing and feeling again faith. For a moment. You see, Theo's faith lost out to chance. So, why bother if life's going to make its own choices? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the craft is incredible. So that sequence where they don't know Theo is hearing this. He's kind of around the corner, but the camera, as you described, holds them all and holds us in that moment, too. So, yeah. Yeah, it is incredible craft throughout. I also like how this ends because, as is probably clear from now, the despair is real in this movie. I think we were chatting a little bit before we started recording. It kind of took us both aback to be reminded of how despairing this film is. But I think you need that so that the little glimmers of hope and the the sense of the Christmas story that seeps through hits you that much more powerfully. And maybe we shouldn't spoil the actual end in case there are some folks who are hearing this and haven't seen Children of Men yet. But it was interesting to me. I couldn't remember exactly how much of an ending it gave us. And it gave us a little more than I would have guessed. But I do think it still leaves us in a place of advent, in a place Mm -hmm. of wondering and longing. And so it's almost if it's not you know, entirely a Christmas story. It also feels at the same time a story of where we are now, kind of the now, but not yet in between, you know, restoration, consummation, the new heaven, new earth. And and I think that's what the ending struck me as very much so this time around is that it gave me the Christmas story ending in a way, but also put me in that place afterwards, which is where we are now. So just incredibly, incredibly rich movie. Yep. Yep. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, thanks, Joe, for revisiting it with me. And I can't let you leave without giving us a book update. So how are you coming on the superpowers and the glory? Well, I'm about to email my editor and ask for another month <laughs> before okay. the deadline. Okay. <laughs> because that's literally the next email that I'm going to do when we're done with this, because it's due at the end of the month. And I just don't think I'm going to be able to pull it off. But um Need a little uh, more time, huh? Just a little more time, yeah. Okay. Um, but but besides that, no, it's it's largely done. I just want to tighten up some things because I'm all nervous. But uh, uh, <laughs> you should still be able to read it in 2022 at some okay. time. Hopefully, well, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is still dominating everything and people are yeah, still interested. Yeah, so. <laughs> I think that's fair to say that'll probably be happening. And yeah, so plenty. We can promise. We can promise folks who are interested in a theological take on superheroes, yes. they could Get that as a Christmas gift, 2022. It's looking like yes, that's, they still, could and that's still in play. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Great. We'll plan on that, Joe. Thanks again, and uh, have a wonderful Christmas. All right. Thanks. You too, Josh. So people get ready for the train to Jordan. <laughs>
John J. Thompson here, and that was just a little bit of the impressions People Get Ready, written and performed by that group's leader, Curtis Mayfield, of course. And if you're not quite ready for full-blown Christmas music, or maybe even if you are, I've pulled together a special mix to go along with this episode's theme that I think you will dig. Who knows? Maybe even some of this music will help transition you into the holiday spirit a bit. Waiting for something to happen, being patient in the darkness, and expecting light to come. That's what Advent is all about, and those themes are all over popular music. Alicia Keys, Tom Petty, Lowland Hum, Beyonce, Beck, Brandy Carlisle, Velvet Underground Killers, Madison Cunningham, and an Adele track you'll hear a little bit later in the show are just a few examples of the unconventional Advent songs in this mix. Oh, and if you find yourself getting into a more conventional Christmas music mood, don't forget about the previous mixes I've made for you. There's one all about secular Christmas songs from last year, and another about Advent Christmas songs we found on television. As always, the mix can be found by searching Spotify. Spotify for the Think Christian profile, or just finding the link on the website. And if you've got a song suggestion for me, send your request to Santa via Twitter at John J. Thompson, and I'll see what I can do. Until next time, this is JJT lighting a candle for you and dropping the needle ever so gently on the next LP. Here's hoping your next song plays clear and smooth. Josh Larson here, back with the TC Podcast, joined by Michelle Reyes, who's going to help me consider a perennial Christmas question. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Are you ready to settle this once and for all, Michelle? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Die Hard, this is (laughs) going to be a bit shocking for some people to realize. Over 30 years old now, came out in 1988, classic action film about a group of terrorists slash thieves they're led by Snape himself, Alan Rickman, who take uh, a crowd of corporate executives hostage at this company holiday party in an L.A. high-rise. Now, the estranged husband of one of those hostages, New York City cop John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, he happens to be there in an attempt to reconcile with his wife, played by Bonnie Bedelia. So he shows up kind of last minute at the party, and his presence throws a considerable kink in the bad guy's plans. So tell me, Michelle, is Die Hard in your regular holiday viewing rotation? Or is this just one that you saw a while back and and remember fondly? For sure. So I I think I first watched Die Hard in middle school. So this is like circa mid-1990s. This was my introduction into the world of of Bruce Willis, and I just thought he was so cool. Uh, Of course. So I I think I've been a Bruce Willis fan ever since Die Hard, and and, and we certainly regularly watch uh, his movies in our house, Die Hard is definitely one of uh, the films we revisit during the holidays. I will say this on an aside, I actually studied Die Hard in an undergraduate course uh, at, at Wheaton College. My degree was Germanic Studies, and I took a course on the Red Army Faction, the RAF, in, in, uh, which was a German terrorist group in the 1970s, West Germany. Okay. Uh, and the, the leaders included Andreas Bader, Ulrika Meinhof, and their goal was to fight against West German capitalist establishments. Post-World War II, you know, they, they believed that they were just these reincarnations of the Third Reich. And so they engaged in a series of bombings, assassinations, kidnapping, bank robberies, shootouts with police over the course of three decades. And I share all this to say that there are a lot of similarities between the antagonist Hans Gruber, who I also mm-hmm. really like, 
uh, and the and the RAF in their anti-capitalist ideology. You know, his henchmen are this diverse mix, but there are some iconic German-looking thugs, which is not surprising as Die Hard is one of many American films in the 80s and 90s that had that German terrorist type mm. villain. And for that reason, I think Hans Gruber, you know, with having a lot of affinities to Andreas Bader from the RAF, he's a sympathetic villain in, in many ways as he serves as this embodied critique of consumerism at, at, at Christmas time. So I know that, you know, the, the focus is on John McClane, but I also have a soft spot for, for Hans Gruber as well. Oh, yeah. One of the great action movie villains, without yes. a doubt. And don't, now yes. that you're telling me all that, when they demand at some point to have prisoners released as part of their sort of cover demand, do they reference anyone from that that group? Or is that kind of something, because they list like a number of sort of terrorist groups that I'm not sure right. if that's maybe an inside thing for people who can... Yeah, make the connections that you're making. Exactly. So that is great. So for this class, you guys watch Die Hard is kind of like, was this like we've had a rough couple of uh, classes with some intense material today? We're just going to watch Die Hard. Is that what happened? Well, we read the journals, the personal writings of Andreas Bader okay. uh, and, and Ulrika Meinhof and the other RAF leaders, uh, you know, and, and after learning about the history and whatnot, we, we then talked about how German that German terrorist movement in the 70s uh, that culminated in the the German autumn of 1977 how it inspired these sort of German villain types in American cinema Got in it. the 80s and 90s and so Die Hard was one of the the films that we watched to, to analyze from that Wow I love it <laughs> all right well th thank you for bringing that did not expect to go down <laughs> that road but that's good stuff <laughs> great context for a movie I thought I knew in and out and now right? I know more so yeah thank you nice uh, now as to the to the Christmas question you know this came up on the TC slack channel we were kind of going back and forth a bunch of us on the podcast team about what movies to include on this episode and die hard came up and Sarah Welch Larson actually, chimed in and said, for her, Die Hard is about trying to get back into right relationship, which doesn't happen till the very end. 100% in Advent movie. We also heard from J.R. Forresteros. Now, J.R., he's been preaching this for a while now. He wrote about Die Hard as a Christmas movie in 2015 over at NorvalRogers.com, discussing it particularly in the context of the incarnation. So, Focusing on the bodily nature of John McClane's heroism, Bruce Willis's heroism, think of his bare, bloody feet, you know, because he's caught off guard, has to escape last minute. Here's what J.R. wrote. Human flesh is inherently weak. We are mortal. Our bodies break down. It's years of our life before we can even begin to defend ourselves. God's kenosis, the incarnation, is an essential statement about who God is. God rules through weakness. God wins by losing. This is why the cross was inevitable for God, because God lives by dying. It's an upside-down reality. So, Michelle, you jumped in on that Slack channel as well in support of Die Hard. So <laughs> I'm assuming that Sarah and JR's theories, or maybe it's something else, you want to come at it from a different angle, resonate yeah. with you. So, so tell me why you consider Die Hard to be an Advent movie. Yeah, for sure. Well, I've got two comments. The first is just Die Hard as a Christmas movie, and then the the Advent reflections. Uh, because after that okay. conversation, I took to Twitter, uh, and just you know, kind of asked into the Twitterverse, is is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yes or no? Uh -huh. and, and I just thought some of the responses were were gold uh, because it it brings up the question of what is a Christmas movie? What gets to count yes. as a Christmas movie? And so you know, some folks said 
Things like, in addition to taking place at Christmas, the plot is shaped and advanced by the celebration of the Christmas holiday. Someone else was like, if Home Alone is a Christmas movie, so is Die Hard. And, you know, someone else mentioned, you know, well, if Die Hard counts, then Iron Man 3 counts. Oh, boy. Uh, okay. You know, so we kind of went down the rabbit trail. Interestingly, some did say, no, it's an action movie. Just because mm. it takes place during a Christmas party doesn't make it a Christmas movie because it doesn't center the experience of Christmas. And another said it's not a Christmas movie because it should at least have something to do with the holiday. Now, what I thought was kind of fun is right after I rewatched Die Hard, which was actually before Thanksgiving, so I started my Christmas movies early, Love Hard came out on Netflix. And yes. this is a new rom-com it's a play on two Christmas films, Love Actually and Die Hard. So Love Hard is the mix of those two titles. The female protagonist loves Die Hard. And there's a ton of Easter eggs in that film. And she argues she has seven reasons for why it's the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Although we don't get to hear all of them. I advocated on Twitter that Bruce Willis says Merry Christmas to his wife at the end of the movie while it begins mm -hmm. to snow and they kiss, which I feel like is a classic Christmas movie plot, uh, you know, yeah. there's also Santa Claus and Willis writes ho, ho, ho on a dead guy's shirt. So yes. there's, there's that. But in, so in terms of the Advent reflections, I think the issue of human weakness that J.R. highlights in his article in this film is spot on because not only is, is, is Bruce Willis's character, John McClane, just your you know average guy, this average cop, um, but he's a bit of a failed husband and a father too. He's a womanizer. At the beginning of the plot, he's putting uh, his own career above his wife's, not supportive of her professional development. But what makes Die Hard such a great film, especially a Christmas film, is that John McClane's journey reflects the human's need for God. He really goes on a transformational journey while fighting these German terrorists. Uh, and as you mentioned, I think one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is when he's forced to walk on that glass barefoot mm. and, he, and as he's really in tears, pulling out those shards of glass, it's a painful scene to watch. In that moment, he's at his weakest and the terrorists are besting him. John doesn't know what to do next. And this realization is really what then begins to catalyze a transformation and you could maybe argue he becomes reborn uh, mm. and that he begins to have a greater dependence on others you know his need for for the cops outside his need for his wife even starts to become more empathetic more loving human being i think so john's journey i would argue in die hard is one of transformation that reflects the spiritual life and how the heart mind soul change when finally confessing our need for jesus so in that sense i think it's quite quite beautiful actually yeah, there's something about it isn't until he suffers in that way and recognizes that he is weak, that he is deficient in some way physically, right? That he then begins to recognize the ways he's emotionally deficient in terms with how he's been relating with his wife, played by Bonnie Bedelia. And I think you're onto something there. And it's just, you know, the movie emphasizes so much the bodily pain that McLean goes through. And this is what made, you mentioned how this was your introduction to Willis. You know, this is, for me, is why Die Hard is such an iconic action picture is because it was one of the first ones that recognized the hero could get hurt. And the hero was, you know, Bruce Willis, sure, he looks like he could be a cop. It's not like he's, you know, has a quote-unquote accountant's body or anything, <laughs> but he's also not Schwarzenegger or Stallone, right? right? This is not your 
like bodybuilder who could not be physically defeated. This isn't a more of an everyman who's in this situation. And I think that was one of the major things that Die Hard brought to the genre that made it hit so hard and resonate so well. And Willis does that in his performance. So I like that. I was thinking about this too, um, because this is the first time I would have agreed it was a Christmas movie because of all the background setting and the little details you talked about. But as an Advent movie, it was a little harder for me. And I do think, especially as we were talking about it in, in Slack, you know, this idea of the incarnation as an unlikely rescue of the world from an unaccounted for place, Mm -hmm. I think we see parallels here, right? So just as a baby upends sin's grip on the world, we've got this guy who wasn't supposed to be there in this place that Hans Gruber has not accounted for that ends up, you know, upending his master plan. And then the other thing I was thinking about, I'm curious to get your opinion on, Michelle, is this notion of we think of Christmas as a silent night. You know, the first Christmas, that's how it's become characterized in the popular imagination or the Christian imagination, at least. And Die Hard is not a silent movie. This is a big (laughs) explosive movie. This is, you know, makes infamous use of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. But one of my favorite scenes, and this connects also to what you were just talking about, is the one where McLean is on the phone. It's a moment of respite. I think it's after possibly walking on the glass. He might be taking some pieces of glass out of his feet, if I'm remembering correctly. But he's on the phone with that beat cop on the ground, played by Reginald Vell Johnson, who's kind of become the one person outside who believes him and is supporting him. And in the course of this conversation, he admits to being a bad husband. And he asks the Vell Johnson character to tell his wife that he loves her. And he doesn't think he's going to make it at this point, right? And This also goes back to Sarah's idea of being in right relationship and how that was the the mission of the incarnation is to bring us back into right relationship with God. And this is what's happening here. It's where McLean, in this rare moment of quiet (laughs) that we get in the movie, starts to admit that. Pal. Yo, pal, you got a minute? I'm here, John. Listen, man, I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. I want you to do something for me. Um, I want you to find my wife. Don't ask me how, by then you'll know how. Uh, I want you to tell her something. I want you to tell her that... um, I told her it took me a while to figure out... Ah, uh, what a jerk I've been. But, um, that. That when things started to pan out for her, I should have been more supportive. And, uh, I just should have been behind her more. So, I don't know, you would not describe. Die Hard as a silent movie, but I think that helps the moments of silence to resonate maybe a little bit more. Mm, That's really good. Uh, I have a lot of random scattered thoughts. One is just, I think, uh, I'm second-generation Indian-American. For a lot of people of color, Christmas is not a silent celebration. It's loud, it's noisy, it's boisterous. You know, Silent Night, the Stille Nacht. Going back to the German, is a an old Protestant, you know, European song. Uh, so I think in many ways that 
really does characterize some of the celebration differences and celebrations between East and West of, of Christmas. But yeah, I think there is something very powerful about that moment of respite in, in, in the film. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's, it's the, the, the hero who's breaking down crying, which is also very folkloric in a sense, mm. as opposed to your, your typical action movie, like you mentioned, Schwarzenegger or, or, or whatnot, who, you know, they're just, they're the tough guy from the beginning. You know, they're going to beat the bad guy. This guy is broken down crying, which is very much yeah. in line with the folktale male hero who isn't always the smartest, isn't always the strongest, oftentimes mm. gets to a point where he feels like he's lost or doesn't know what to do, sits down and cries. But because he's been compassionate to somebody along the way, a helper comes in and like encourages him further along the journey. And, and I think mm. that's what you see in that relationship between Bruce Willis and that, that beat cop is that, you know, he, he replies, the cop replies to him, you tell your wife that yourself, right? <laughs> He's like, yes, you can't, yeah. you can't quit. You got to keep going. And I think that that's such a beautiful moment in in, in the film too. I, you know, I don't know if you want to over spiritualize that, but it, the beat cop really is this sort of magical helper, this sort of spiritual aid that that comes in at at Willis's uh, weakest moment. So you brought in uh, folk tales. You brought in <laughs> contemporary German history. I just, uh, uh, I love it. I love, <laughs> love the breath. <laughs> We're getting into here, Michelle. So thank you very much. Thanks for revisiting Die Hard and defending it as a Christmas movie with me. I hope your Christmas is really great. And we'll talk to you. You're going to be part of our best of 2021 mega show, right? Where we're all getting together and share our favorites. Oh, I can't wait. That's going to be awesome. All right. We'll talk to you then. Sounds good. Adele's recent Christmas gift for us all was her first album in six years, 30. That was a bit of Love in the Dark, comes from her previous album, 25, and the title of the song alone carries a bit of Advent resonance. Speaking of Sarah Welch Larson, she wrote about 30 on the TC website, so look for that at thinkchristian.net. As you can imagine, we have all sorts of Christmas-related material on our website, thinkchristian.net, including a new post from Rachel Sions, who offers an overview and a theological interpretation of yet another genre of holiday cinema, the Hallmark-style Christmas movie. And if you're looking for more Christmas-related podcast episodes, go to our archives and you'll find one on so-called secular Christmas music, sort of a variation of what we did here on this show with film. And then there's another episode on Advent TV, where we discuss how the Grinch stole the Christmas and some of our other favorite holiday specials. I want to thank listeners again for chiming in with their picks for unconventional Christmas movies. We want to include you as well in our next episode. That's going to be out in January, and it's our best of 2021 mega show. So we're gathering the entire podcast team on one episode, and they're going to name their favorite movies, TV shows, and music from the year. 
we want to hear yours as well. So send them, again, via Facebook or Twitter, at ThinkChristian is where you can find us. Or you can always email us, tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. Be sure to follow the guests who came on and helped me with today's show on Twitter. Joe George is at J.A. George II, and Michelle Reyes is at Dr. Michelle Reyes. Thanks to both of them for joining me today. For YouTube viewers, you missed out on a couple of tracks from John J. Thompson's Spotify playlist that he compiled to accompany this episode. You can catch up with those songs and a bunch more by searching for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify. The Think Christian Podcast is a listener-supported program of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more info. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Basler. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith.